From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. In his State of the State, Governor Jared Polis tried to inspire lawmakers with a quote from The Lord of the Rings. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. We'll look at what's next. Then we head to the ends of the earth where Colorado scientists are leading cutting-edge climate change research. We're thinking that over the next decade, the ice that we're camped out on right now won't be attached to Antarctica anymore. It'll be an iceberg drifting in the ocean. Also, why it's been a big week for wolves, plus part stage play, part food tour, a preview of recipe. The smell of fried food and family. The sounds of laughter and love a place you can truly call your own. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Just as you might make a New Year's resolution, the state's leaders lay out what they hope to achieve in 2020. And that happened this week with the legislature back in session and the governor delivering a state-of-the-state speech chock full of promises. So will these resolutions be fulfilled Or will they peter out like a mid-year gym membership? At CPR, the job of tracking that falls to public affairs reporters Benta Berkland and Andy Kenny. Welcome to you both. Hi, Ryan. Howdy. Okay, Benta, the governor covered a lot of ground in this speech. Of all the things he said, though, what do you think had lawmakers buzzing the most? Well, one idea was that Polis would support an effort to create a public option health care plan in the state. And a proposal is in the works, but it hasn't been introduced yet. And Polis said it makes good economic sense and would add more competition into the healthcare market and lower costs. But it could be a heavy lift. Uh, he mentioned in his state of the state there are 22 counties in Colorado with just one insurer. So he wants to create more competition there, presumably to drive down costs. The Colorado Hospital Association has already put out a statement that the public option is the wrong solution for Colorado and uh, cautions lawmakers not to rush into a fix. Andy, I think you got a mailer against the public option already. Is that right? I already did. Yeah, so this campaign is well underway. It sounds like this could be a major fight both inside and outside of the Capitol. Yes, definitely. And even one of the Democratic backers of the idea said it won't be easy to get something like this passed because not all of the Democrats who hold the majority in each chamber are sold on it. And Polis also definitely does see that strong opposition from people outside of the building, and he did address it in the speech. And of course, those folks are going to fight legislation that brings some sanity to pricing. I get that. But we, re- we don't represent the special interests. We represent the people. And the people are crying out for relief on high health care costs, and we can and we will do better. And Polis also said Colorado has the second highest profit margin for hospitals in the country. And it sounds like he plans to take them on directly. Andy, you got a chance to check in with lawmakers. Uh, What responses did you hear to the governor's support for a public option after the speech? Well, let's start with the Republicans. Healthcare actually is an area where we've seen some bipartisan cooperation with the two parties. Last year, they passed the reinsurance law. Polis brought up how that had saved people money. The whole chamber applauded. But when it comes to the public option, we're hearing arguments that might remind you of the kind of Affordable Care Act arguments that we heard 10 years ago. And in fact, uh, Chris Holbert told us that the Affordable Care Act didn't work, and so this won't work either. That is the Senate majority, a minority leader, pardon me. That's right. And here's what I heard from Senator Bob Rankin, who helped write that big reinsurance bill last year. He's a Republican, and this public option is a no-go with him. 
The, the public option has two things that I vehemently oppose. One of is mandatory participation by providers, and the other is price controls. On the Democratic side, they are all, they're underlining the idea that people are just getting crushed by health costs. And it was interesting that Polis also called out the hospitals very specifically, saying that they were funding this pushback already, like that mailer that I, I got. And mm. he is saying that... Uh, you know, that's just a sign of how serious this fight is going to be. OK, so there has been bipartisan cooperation on health care, but the public option does not seem to be reflecting that. Last year, the big policy the governor focused on in his state of the state address was full day kindergarten. He got lawmakers to agree to that. Benta, did he lay out any new proposals for families with young children this year? Yes, and it wasn't a surprise. He's now shifting his attention to the next frontier, preschool access. He said the state was able to fund 6,000 new slots last year, and he asked lawmakers for money to fund another 6,000 this year. He says that would bring the state up to covering half of Colorado's four-year-olds. And he set a bigger goal for the future by the end of his first term, which is 2022. He wants to achieve universal access to preschool. All right. So that's a promise we'll certainly be tracking throughout his term. What other goals did the governor commit to in this speech? Some of them were bigger picture without a lot of details, but he also offered specifics, too. He talked about setting aside more money for the state's reserve fund and said he's working with the treasurer to plan for the next recession, paid family and medical leave for state workers, He'd also look at expanding that as well, ask for one-time money for state parks. He also said he supports giving regional governments the authority to ask for tax increases to fund transportation projects. You know, speaking of transportation, voters have rejected statewide measures to pay for roads and transit. And it occurs to me that, that Polis put out there in his State of the State speech that there needed to be big ideas to help fund transportation. And it was a sort of fill-in-the-blank moment. I guess we'll see what those big ideas are. I know that in a speech like this, one thing you watch for is who claps for what. I'm sure there were lots of things Polis proposed that got applause from everyone and more partisan statements that were only applauded for by Democrats. Were there any moments that you were surprised by in terms of the applause? Yeah, in this big game of musical chairs, there was one moment that only the Republicans really clapped, and that's when Polis brought up tax reform, and the Democrats, they didn't clap. I'm very enthusiastic about working with you to deliver permanent income tax relief, and we should continue down this path of eliminating tax breaks for special interests so that we can lower the rates for everyone without reducing state revenue. Okay, so that's the minority clapping. Yeah, and Got maybe it. a few Democrats. Okay, you were talking to lawmakers after the speech, as I said. What were they saying about that moment? Well, when it came to Polis's statements about taxes, the Republicans basically said, yeah, bring it on. Um, they are all about this potential idea of permanently lowering, lowering income tax rates. I later talked with Democrat Sonia Hawkes-Lewis, and she agreed that Democrats were a little bit slower to stand up and applaud the idea of a a change to the income tax rate. As she kind of tactfully put it, she's just not sure what that change will look like yet. And she said she's most concerned about who's going to benefit and making sure that whatever the state does primarily helps lower income people. And if we change the way that we tax folks, are we not giving enough of a tax, I guess, a, a relief to those that really need it? And if we just do one that's across the board, is that really going to help the people that need it? 
And what's interesting is the Democratic Speaker of the House, Casey Becker, took a stronger stance against the idea. She told CPR Colorado is already one of the lowest tax states in the country. And Becker says things like schools and roads are underfunded and there needs to be more money in the state's coffers, not tax cuts. I think it's safe to say Polis is really bucking his party on this policy push to try to permanently lower income taxes. Okay, we've talked a lot about the speech itself, but something notable happened before it got started. There were protesters in the chamber. Tell us about that, Andy. Well, the first thing that happened was as as I stood in the corner with the TV cameras, a very small packet of flyers landed with a dull thud. Someone had thrown it from the balcony up above and... They promptly got recycled, and we thought maybe that would be the end of it. It's like a leaflet drop, okay. Yep, yep. And soon after that, though, we heard calls of uh, ban fracking now and what's your plan. These were climate activists, and one person got his or her hands around the banister and I believe superglued them together. We saw Capitol Police, State Patrol descend on this person, four four or five police officers, and kind of rip those hands apart. I'm guessing that the glue had not set yet because it didn't sound very painful, but it was it was pretty dramatic. There were banners unfurling too. Bento, you've covered a lot of state of the state addresses. Have you seen anything like this before? No, I never have. And I think people were pretty surprised. And it's also somewhat ironic because Polis is generally on the same side of the climate issue as many of these activists. He's been very concerned about the impact of oil and gas drilling close to homes and schools. And in fact, Republican activists unsuccessfully tried to launch a recall campaign against Polis, in part for his support for stricter oil and gas regulations that they say will hamper the traditional energy industry. Ultimately, it only delayed the speech a few minutes and it didn't seem too disruptive. I will say that the chance were for ban fracking now, a complete fracking ban not currently on the table. Uh, but did he address climate change in his speech? He did. He mentioned efforts already underway to move to renewable energy. And his goal is 100 percent renewable energy by the year 2040. But he didn't roll out any big proposals. All right. Ben to Berkland and Andy Kenny are our public affairs reporters. And now that we've gotten the real news out of the way, it is time once again for our news quiz, shamelessly stolen from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. But uh, Peter Sagal, imitation is the highest form of flattery. Okay, Venta, Andy, in this week's quiz, I'm going to describe bills that have been introduced in past legislative sessions. You have to decide if they are real or fake. Okay? Got that? (laughs) Yes. You're ready. If you answer correctly, you'll hear this. I've seen it rain and fire in the sky. That's a phrase from Colorado's second official state song, John Denver's Rocky Mountain High. If you answer incorrectly, this will play. The sound of a jackhammer, which is a (laughs) reference to both parties placing a priority on infrastructure and transportation, but disagreeing over how to pay for it. Okay, are you ready for this true or false quiz? Yes. Yep. Andy, was this a real bill? HB 1020 said that if you fly a drone loaded with alcohol or drugs within five miles of a detention facility, you are essentially introducing contraband. I'm going to say false. That was a real bill. It failed, though, in the 2016 session. Okay, Benta, HB, HB 1231 made it a misdemeanor for state workers to personalize government vehicles. And uh, this bill made specific reference to bumper stickers, air fresheners, and mirror and dashboard ornamentation. Hmm, I think so. Yes. 
That is a fake bill. I made that one up. I'm, I can't believe that I pulled a fast one on you, Beto. I know. As long as you've been at the state house. Okay, Andy, uh, SB 77 allowed the state health department to regulate the collection, storage, and disposal of trap grease and yellow grease. That's got to be true. That's got to be real. I've seen it rain and fire in the sky. Yeah, that's a real bill. It passed in 2012. This is the grease and oil left over after cooking. Benta, SB 122 created a grant program in Parks and Wildlife to study how roadkill could be used as food, feed, or fiber. Yes, I think so. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that is a fake bill. These all sound so plausible. I know. I am, I'm, I'm just, a bad reporter now. <laughs> except that I, I, I now walk with the pride of knowing that I duped a Benta Berkland. Okay, Benta Berkland, Andy, Kenny, they are our public affairs reporters. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. Today's show and Mondays will be polar opposites, literally. We're going to take you to the Antarctic today, the Arctic Monday. In both places, Coloradans are conducting cutting-edge climate change research. The ends of the earth may feel far away, but they help determine global temperatures and sea levels. So today from Antarctica, CU glaciologist Ted Scambos, who was camped on the edge of Thwaites Glacier, which is the size of Florida and melting faster than expected. That could be disastrous for coastal cities if they're not prepared. We reached Scambos on a satellite phone. Ted, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. I understand that though you've only been there a few weeks, there's already some news. The ice is thinner than expected. Do I have that right? Yeah, the ice where we're at is a little bit thinner than we were expecting. Uh, It's also evolving fairly fast. We're able to make some measurements that tell us how fast it's thinning. It's lost about a little under a foot, about eight inches or so, just in the few weeks that we've been here beneath this particular part of Antarctica. Is that alarming? We came here because we knew the ice was thinning fast here. There's some question as to whether or not there's seasonal cycle to Mm. how fast the ice melts here. That's why we're setting up a station that will stay here and and measure conditions all year long. And that will give us a better insight into just how alarming the melt rate is. In other words, there may be a natural freeze-thaw cycle, but you want to gauge how much climate change is playing a role here, I gather. It's a little more obscure than that. And what's happening is the ocean on the underside of this floating plate of ice that we're on is being melted by water that has just a degree or two above freezing, just a little bit of heat in it. Hmm. And that may cycle through on a summer and winter cycle based on how winds push the ocean around outside of where the ice is. At the core of that, are are you interested in what role climate change is playing, though? That's actually the overarching question here, is how this very large glacier in Antarctica is changing, responding to the fact that the ocean system and the atmosphere are changing because of climate warming. The um, Pacific is getting warmer. That whole tropical band is getting warmer, in fact, and that affects the winds around Antarctica changing how fast they blow and how close they are to the coastline. And that, in turn, affects ocean circulation. We're talking about this Thwaites Glacier, the size of Florida, and uh, this 
place where it meets the ocean. I imagine in order to learn some of what you have to learn, you're going to have to do some rather deep drilling. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. We have a hot water jet that we use to bore a hole through the ice about 8, 10 inches in diameter. And we lower instruments through that hole, which is about just over 1,000 feet, and then uh, into the ocean below. And um, yesterday we actually finished one of the measurement strings down to 26, 2,700 feet below the surface. Wow, and this is, I understand, like a fiber optic cable? That's correct. We're using a new technology based on lasers and fiber optic cables to measure temperature every meter of that 2,700 feet. Early data that we took using more conventional instruments shows that there's a really warm layer down near the bottom of the ocean that's probably circulating. We didn't get current measurements yet, but circulating underneath the shelf and causing it to melt. Is this work at all dangerous? Uh, We do have a couple of mountaineers that are scouting every route. We're also surveying the region around the borehole. We're definitely concerned about cracks on the surface, crevasses and and shearing that's going on. It's definitely an evolving area. We're thinking that over the next decade, the ice that we're camped out on right now won't be attached to Antarctica anymore. It'll be an iceberg drifting in the ocean. Mm. You're in a place called Cavity Camp. Sounds like a child's worst nightmare at the dentist. Can you just describe for me where you are specifically right now, what you're seeing? Well, in terms of where we are, you take your left hand and you curl your fingers over your palm and stick your thumb out like you're hitchhiking. Okay. That's sort of your map of Antarctica. And we're right at the base of your thumb just before it kind of rolls into your palm, uh, right on the coast of Antarctica. Essentially, it's due south of Colorado. We're right at the same uh, longitude as Colorado here, 105 degrees west. But we're just 8,000 miles south of Colorado. Yes, and and 20 hours ahead of Denver. Yeah, and that has to do with being on New Zealand time because of the flights and and, uh, pilots need in order to communicate easily. Oh, interesting. And and where where are you? Like, What's around you immediately right now? Right now, it's big, flat, white plain as far as the ice eye can see. On the horizon, you can actually see Thwaites Glacier rising. It's called Cavity Camp because uh, we're interested in understanding the ocean cavity, the ocean volume underneath this plate of ice and what's going on in terms of circulation and how the seabed is shaped uh, because that controls how this water is flowing towards the ice and getting into the glacier. Yeah, you, you really get a sense for what a system it is. All of these things interacting, the wind, the water, etc. Are you in some sort of cabin right now? Are you warm? <laughs> yeah, actually, it's very sunny today. And uh, because it's so white everywhere, um, it's actually not hard to stay warm on a day when the temperature is about 35 or 40. It's midsummer in Antarctica, so... Uh, And this is an unusually warm day. We're inside a a big tent, the science or tech tent that we have. And then there's another tent that's fairly large that we use for cooking and eating. One of your colleagues wrote a blog recently. He mentioned that a BBC team was visiting and that you all offered them a cup of tea with water from freshly melted snow and full cream milk powder to add these extra calories to keep them warm. 
Does food have to be yeah. ultra hearty to keep you going? Yes, there's things that I'll, I'll have that just sound great here in Antarctica that ordinarily I would not be all that interested in eating. We're putting a lot of olive oil into our food to, for extra fat, like on rice or in mashed potatoes. For example, a can of sardines isn't too appealing to me most of the time, but in Antarctica it just sounds like a great, <laughs> a great snack because it's so rich with calories. What is the strangest thing about life there? Wow. Uh, you're mostly wearing the same clothes for a week or 10 days or so. It's not terrible because you don't sweat all that much, but it's a little different. Uh, <laughs> you're odd to get up and put the same things on. I guess the uh, cramped conditions inside the tent, are they're very different, and it's hard to keep track of things. You know, did I leave my laptop underneath my chocolate bar or, or what? Um, <laughs> I just want to note that yours is one of eight projects going on right now. Uh, just give me an example before we go of something another team is working on. There's a team that's actually on the mountain range that we can see from here about 80 miles away. And they're actually collecting rocks, but not from the surface. They're actually going off to the side of the mountain and drilling through the ice to collect a rock, a sample of rock that's been buried under the ice for presumably hundreds to thousands of years. And oh, that's wow. the question. How long has the ice been at the level that it's at now? Or when was the last time that rocks were more exposed than they are today? Because that would indicate that Thwaites, uh, the glacier, had, had shrunk considerably at some time in the past. And we'd want to know when that was and get an idea of what climate was like the last time Thwaites began to shrink. Well, given the sheer scope of the problem of climate change and rising sea levels, is just providing scientific data like this enough to save people's lives, turn the tide? I mean, you, you can't exactly stop sea levels from rising at this exact moment. The main thing we're doing is constraining some of the things that could be really nasty surprises in terms of sea level rise, we're trying to constrain how this is all going to unfold with this huge mass of ice. We're hoping that we can give people a better roadmap and either put the brakes on with global warming or prepare to adapt and uh, modify the infrastructure around the world that is at risk because of higher sea level rise. Well, thank you so much for checking in from the end of the Earth. Thanks so much for asking. Ted Scambos by satellite phone from Antarctica. He's a senior researcher at the Earth Science and Observation Center at CU Boulder. He expects to leave Thwaites Glacier any day now. On Monday, I'm going to speak with a man who helped create the biggest scientific mission ever in the Arctic. We saw a number of polar bears. They would come through camp. We had a fox come through camp, an Arctic fox running around, and they actually like to chew on cables. Wolves have been in the news a lot lately. So earlier this week, a plan to reintroduce gray wolves made the 2020 ballot in Colorado. Days later, state biologists announced there's strong evidence a pack is living in northwest Colorado. 
CPR's Sam Brash is here to explain this incredible coincidence, what it might mean for the ballot and for the wolves. Hi, Sam. Glad to be here. So the, the timing is fascinating. What do we know about this wolf pack, first off? And what, did they just happen to show up in time for the initiative? Uh, not quite. So Colorado Parks and Wildlife, they've heard rumors about wolves in Colorado's for years. Uh, but last October, a group of hunters filed an eyewitness account of six wolves in the wilderness on the border between like Wyoming and Utah, right in the northwest corner of the state. Okay. And they shot a video, too. It shows like two of these creatures darting through the sagebrush. That was followed by the discovery of this elk carcass in the same area, and it was nearly, like, picked clean. I've seen photos of this from Colorado Parks and Wildlife. It's really unbelievable. I mean, these wolves can eat everything. There is nothing left on this animal. Um, So it's not as definitive as something like a DNA test, but according to people I've talked to, this is really strong evidence that wolves are living in the state. Uh, haven't there been earlier wolf sightings in Colorado? It's not the first. Yes, there have been other wolf sightings in Colorado. What's different this time is it's a sighting of multiple wolves traveling together, potentially a pack. Right, you said six. Six, right. That's something that hasn't happened in the state since maybe the 1940s. That's when biologists think that hunters killed the last of Colorado's native wolves. Okay, so the previous sightings were lone wolves, literally. Okay. literally. Uh, Why don't we talk about the ballot initiative? How would it work? And what happens with it now? that it appears wolves are already in the state. Right. Okay. So it's tentatively known as Initiative 107. That name will probably change as we figure out the rest of the ballot. But it'll ask voters to force wildlife managers to reintroduce and manage gray wolves west of the Continental Divide by the end of 2023. And this is something wolf advocates in Colorado have wanted for decades. And even with the arrival of wolves, they're they're not backing down from this ballot fight. Okay. So the idea here is west of the Continental Divide. We're not reintroducing these into Lafayette or Fort Collins. Yeah, exactly. Sorry, guys. Okay, so why aren't they backing down if there is presumably a wolf pack already? Yeah, so what they say is there's a big difference between a few wolf sightings and a self-sustaining population, a pack of wolves, many packs of wolves that are breeding and, uh, you know, creating a population that lives here continuously. Um, So they point to the earlier reintroduction efforts in the U.S. Uh, Wolves were first brought back to Yellowstone and central Idaho in 1996, but before before that, there were other wolf sightings like we're talking about right now. And they th- say establishing gray wolves um, took active reintroduction, bringing those wolves down um, from Canada and other places and releasing them. And while those Yellowstone wolves and those Idaho wolves have made it to Oregon, Washington, and even California, it's a really tough trip down to Colorado. There's lots of highways and wolves can be legally killed for any reason in most of Wyoming. So they say that these sightings just don't mean wolves are deeply established here to stay. Exactly. Okay. Uh, Would it be legal for wolves to be killed in Colorado? You mentioned Wyoming. Uh, It's not. So wolves have been removed from the endangered species list in the northern Rockies and near the Great Lakes. Um, Those states can manage their own populations. And Wyoming has decided that the vast majority of the state, that is free reign territory to kill a wolf on site with no legal repercussions. But here in Colorado, they're still endangered under federal law and there are fines and penalties for killing one. Okay. So this would not come with some sort of hunting season, for instance. Who opposed? 
opposes this initiative? So it, the big groups are uh, ranchers, livestock owners, and sportsmen. They've all uh, banded together to form uh, the Colorado Stop the Wolf Coalition. And their main argument is like, this is ballot box biology. Sorry, ballot box biology. It takes a really complicated matter, something that's usually up to wildlife managers, and puts it into a yes and no question, yes or no question for voters. They say it's way better to leave something like that to, to people who really know Colorado's ecology and its landscape and how to work with it. Um, plus, they say it could probably come with some big consequences, you know, lost livestock and ecological ones, too. Uh, a much earlier and very successful reintroduction effort here in Colorado was bringing moose back to the state. And they say that bringing wolves back could uh, cut against that earlier effort. You, you've no doubt seen the wolf language, Sam. It, mm-hmm. does, it doesn't spell out like all the specifics of what wildlife managers would have to do. I mean, there would be some figuring out... Absolutely, yeah. So the wildlife managers would get the opportunity to make a scientifically based plan to figure out how to reintroduce wolves. So there still be this level of, you know, bureaucracy and public decision making involved. But they have to reintroduce wolves by the end of 2023. Uh, what do wildlife managers think about the initiative? Have they weighed in themselves? So so state employees are, are barred from taking public stances on ballot questions. I think that makes sense. But Colorado Wildlife Commission um, has a wolf policy, which it reaffirmed in 2016. And that says it's, you know, fine with wolves migrating to the state on their own and establishing a population here, but they do not support active wolf reintroduction. And just to understand the opposition a little better, mm-hmm. um, you know, they, they argue that this is ballot box biology. But they're concerned about their livelihoods. I mean, Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think like you can talk about that in a few ways. With ranchers, you have people with sheep and cattle that they stand to lose. Those are very valuable animals. With hunters, you have people who rely on you know Colorado's massive herds of elk and mule deer to to fill their freezers every single winter. And you know the state too makes a huge amount of money from selling hunting tags every single year. That That is where most of Colorado Parks and Wildlife's money comes from. So there's a lot of interest in, in maintaining those populations. Okay, where does this all go from here, Sam Brash? I mean, it goes to, to the, the ballot. ballot. Yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, Wolf Supporters uh, commissioned one poll. It's an online poll, but it showed that two-thirds of Coloradans support wolf reintroduction. But op- opponents I've talked to say they haven't really gotten a chance to teach Colorado voters about the downsides of having wolves back in the state, especially a state as populated as Colorado. Um, and they say with these you know, predators living in Colorado now, establishing themselves possibly in Colorado, they're going to be arguing that wolf reintroduction maybe isn't necessary. You know, it just occurred to me that dynamic that's going to be fascinating is the majority of the population is on the side of the state where they're not being reintroduced. That is, many of the voters who might pass this don't live where they'd be reintroduced. Sure. And the same poll that I was talking about, it said that, you know, two thirds of people on the front range or more support wolf reintroduction. On On the Western Slope, I expected to see a much lower level of support. It didn't find that. Now, again, this is one online poll. I don't want to make too much of it. But I also don't want to make too much of this potential, like, urban-rural divide. divide. It's, okay. it's essentially, it's there, but I don't know if it's borne out in data. Uh, reporting will continue. That's CPR Sam Brash. Thanks, Sam. Thank you. On the ballot initiative to reintroduce the gray wolf in western Colorado. And we'll be right back with catfish and pig ear sandwiches and homemade vanilla, how all of that inspired a new stage play. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. <laughs> 
Hey there, it's Vic Vela, the host of Weekend Edition here on CPR News. And whatever you're going to do this weekend, ski, go to a concert, or lounge on the couch with your dog like I do on my days off, know that it's easy to keep up with what's happening in the world around you. If you have a smart speaker, all you need to do is ask it to play CPR News. Colorado Public Radio is at your command anytime, hands-free, with your smart speaker. The other day, we visited a building that looked like something out of the Old West, in the shadow of downtown Denver. Inside, in the kitchen, it looked like they were making moonshine or whiskey. In fact, it was... Vanilla. Vanilla? Why vanilla? Well, at this building called the Savoy, there was the Rodell Vanilla Laboratories. Um, Rodell is still in existence today in Fort Collins, but they had a long, long history in this building. And we were quite inspired by the story. And of course, the smell of vanilla is hard to resist. This is Megan Frank of Theater Artibus. She helped put together a new show called Recipe, which takes place in this building. Stories and tastes and scents mix. And Megan, it really does smell like vanilla. It smells like childhood. We've attempted to actually have vanilla permeate this room because smell, I think, is the sense that brings you back to a memory the quickest. What is recipe? Well, recipe essentially is a conversation, both with this building itself as a character and the neighborhood in which it lives. And let me say, the Curtis Park neighborhood, where we are, Mm -hmm. a very diverse neighborhood, immigrant neighborhood, an African-American neighborhood. Very much so. It's a neighborhood with such a rich history. Um, We felt like food was a great way to start the conversation, since it seems to be a great common denominator and a place where stories happen around the table. That's where we began the idea for recipe, was to just talk to people and ask them about their stories about food as an attempt to talk about what it means to be in a neighborhood. Let's hear a bit of what you recorded, which also plays in this show recipe. Cooking that food for the church definitely brought us closer to the church, but it really brought me closer to the people who I was cooking with. All these businesses were like shuttered, and I just thought, I don't understand with all the development in the city why this street looks so sad and so shuttered. And, uh, and it was truly the most nourishing. It wasn't that I need a chicken. It was because the feeling and the sharing and the caring that went into that whole moment. The recipe to make a great neighborhood is love, basically. I think um, that's the main ingredients of any recipe. These interviews, these recordings, helped shape the show, during which audience members moved from room to room, story to story. Speaking of, let's dip into the next one set in a cafe where we find recipe co-creator Jeff Campbell of Emancipation Theater Company. He plays a Denver man who remains influential, community organizer and mentor, Brother Jeff. 2836 Welton Street, the world's best catfish sand. The boys that became men. The sisters who became queens. The head wraps the shikis, kente cloth, the vibe was inescapable. Say it loud. The leadership by example. The artists who were inspired, the businesses that were created, the relationships that were formed, the babies that were born. Say it loud. No such thing as too black and never too strong. The catalyst for many of our movements, the base camp of the brain trust, 
the celebration of history, heritage, and culture. So come on in and enjoy yourself. Game of chess, anyone? Spades? Dominoes? The smell of fried food and family. The sounds of laughter and love. A place you can truly call your own. Welcome to Brother Jeff's Cultural Center and Cafe. Jeff Campbell, you play Brother Jeff. You just are both named Jeff, I guess. So we're both named Jeff, and we're both brothers, too. What's the scene you're recreating here? I'm recreating uh, the Friday night open mic poetry set. We'd have fried catfish, whiting filet, chicken strips, french fries, and a drink. Any combination of that for $7. And in addition to that, folks would come together and we would have an open mic. This does not go on anymore. It sounds like you're speaking of it in the past tense. I think he's brought it back for Thursday nights now. But there was something special about that back in the 90s that it gave birth to so many powerful, industrious, artistic folks who have gone on to do big, beautiful things since then. Can you name one? Jay Electronica is a world-renowned hip-hop artist. Another one, Dominique Christine, she's a renowned poet. There is a Chet Sisk, who is a futurist and an author. In addition to performers, there's also a bakery that was started, kind of out of there, conceptualized, as well as a clothing line. So just a lot of folks were there. It was a soup of creativity. It was. It was like Denver's Harlem Renaissance. Are there any folks from those original gatherings who are going to show up at Recipe? Absolutely. We have Lady Speech, Susie Q. Smith, Jovan Mays, and many others that were there when it all started. Oh, they'll be performing? Absolutely. Jeff, it occurs to me that this is a neighborhood in transition, meaning it's gentrifying, a lot of new faces, a lot of scrape-offs and new buildings being built. Do you think part of this is grounding new folks in what came before them? Well, for me, I'm just making a tribute to someone that I love in this community that meant a lot to me in this community. In addition to that, our community is still very strong. I mean, we are, we're still making businesses, creating fantastic art, running for office, raising beautiful families. So nothing's going to stop it, not even gentrification. This is not to you a, a purely historical piece. This is a very contemporary piece. Absolutely. I lived it, I walked it, I breathed it. I'm a product of it. Our final stop, a grocery store. Bins full of carrots and scallions and tomatoes. A grocer stands behind the counter. He's having a conversation with the neighborhood dog who has paid the shop a visit. Labs Grocery Kosher Store. And my name is Joseph. Okay, what is your name? I'm Bob. Everybody knows me, and I know every smell on this neighborhood. Speaking about that, I gotta go. See you around. Hey, hey, wait a minute. Where are you going? Oh, yeah, I believe Louise Armstrong is staying at the Rasonian. He is a young jazz musician. I love jazz. He loves beans. I love beans, too. So I might get some leftovers if I will hanging out by the back door of the kitchen. And this way, 
I get to listen some music. He is one cool cat, that Louis. Whatever he plays makes me howl. Ow, 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 Celia and Benjamin Lubb were in residence here in this very spot in the Savoy from 1910 to 1934, um, Jewish immigrants from Hungary who had a grocery store right here in the storefront. This is Julie Rada of Grapefruit Lab, the third theater company behind the show. What we learned in researching this building is that in this corner spot, this storefront, there were always food-related businesses. So it was a meat market, there was a bakery, and Celia Lubb, after her husband died, continued to run the grocery store here. So this is a fictionalized understanding of stuff we found in census records and notes from folks traveling across the ocean, ocean liner records and ship manifests and things like that. The immigrant story. The immigrant story. Yeah, that's right. And what better than to tell the stories that we could imagine in here, even if we don't have all the details. As artists, we get to meet this material and let let ourselves dream up what stories might have taken place in a building like this. Does this show make you hungry? <laughs> we have a cast member, Adrian, who she came into the building and started telling stories about being in this building. She actually remembered that she shot a toothpaste commercial here in the 80s. <laughs> and she started telling some stories for this piece. And one of the things she started talking about were these taquitos, these beef taquitos that are sold at the creamery, the Curtis Park Creamery nearby. And every time she talks about them, my mouth waters. Am I going to eat during this show? We will have little morsels um, little of things morsels. to eat. But you, yeah. I have a buffet-sized appetite now. <laughs> well, you've got to come to the show more than once then. Oh, okay. You'll, you'll feel satiated. If you come to the matinee and the night show, you can have a few more. I see. I'm piecing together yeah. a meal. Um, I have to mention the pig ear sandwiches. In multiple interviews, these pig ear sandwiches have come up. One of the people we interviewed said verbatim, she said, no one in their right mind rushes into their first pig ear sandwich. Is it a literal pig ear? <laughs> it is, and it looks like it. Jeff, have you tried one? No. Pig ear sandwiches, pig's feet, t pig intestines or chitlins, you know, those all come out of slavery when black folks weren't allowed to eat the best portions of the animal. They were given the scraps. But we turned that death sandwich into delicacies. That you have yet to try. Well, I'm free now. <laughs> <laughs> Free not to eat pig ear sandwiches. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Thank you so much for having us. Good luck with the show, Break a Leg. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Jeff Campbell, Megan Frank, and Julie Rada are behind the new show, Recipe. Thanks as well to actor Buba Basishvili. The show runs through January 19th at the Savoy at Curtis Park in Denver. Think of what inspires great art, nature, the human form, and now... Wow, Casa Bonita! Woo-hoo! What's Casa Bonita? Dude, haven't you ever been there? It's a big Mexican restaurant, but they have, like, cliff jumpers and Black Bart's Cave and all kinds of stuff. It's like the Disneyland of Mexican restaurants. 
An art gallery in Lakewood is calling for pieces that feature Casa Bonita. Two and 3D works are welcome, meaning it could be a painting of a cliff diver or a sculpture made of sopapillas. The juried show will open in late February at Next Gallery, an artist co-op. Andrew Novick is helping put this together because he's something of a Casa Bonita expert. Hi, Andrew. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Uh, what does it take to be a Casa Bonita expert? How many times have you been, first off? Well, I just had my 305th visit Three. to Casa Bonita. Okay. I guess, is that as close to expert as you get? I, I think it is. Uh, you must have missed my party last February. I had a big uh, blowout for my 300th visit. I guess I did miss that. How was it? It was amazing. We had over 400 people come, and I got to be in the gunfights, and we had mermaids. So the folks at Next Gallery asked for your expertise. What sorts of pieces do you picture? You must have done a little imagining yourself. Oh, yeah. You know, the facade of the building is such an incredible thing, just popping up in the middle of Lakewood with the gold dome and the pink uh, building. So that's like, I think, a iconic imagery. But also there's, you know, Chiquita the gorilla. There's the waterfall and the divers and the Black Bart's Cave and the puppet show. So there's so many things within Casa Bonita that could invoke, you know, ideas for either a painting or photography or sculptural works or even audio recordings. How about if somebody gets a Casa Bonita tattoo and enters that into the art <laughs> show? Do, do you think that these are works already made for the most part or that they'll be created for the show? In other words, might there be a treasure trove of Casa Bonita art already out there? Um, I think there is art already out there, but um, I'm hoping people will make something specifically for this show. We've had um, a couple art shows in the past. This will be the third annual. So people are getting really into it. Oh, so you, you've had these before about Casa Bonita? Yeah. What has been entered in the past? Um, somebody made plates of the food out of uh, lacquered paper. <laughs> <laughs> so you can imagine how far it can go with, you know, people kind of love it or hate it, but uh, everyone seems to know about it. Is this only for professional artists or can anyone who's inspired to create a work of art contribute? Oh, definitely anybody can. We've had uh, kids enter it. It's a very friendly, open call. So I think it would be a great for uh, someone who's never done art for an art show before to enter. What is it about Casa Bonita that has you going back hundreds of times before we go, Andrew Novick? I think it's the wonder and excitement that it generates uh, for people who've never been there. You know, I, I, I go with people who've you know been multiple times as well. But for me, the excitement really is taking somebody there for their first time and just taking them on a tour. I have my unofficial Casa Bonita tour that I do. Andrew, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you. Andrew Novick wants your Casa Bonita art for a show next month at Next Gallery in Lakewood. The submission deadline is February 3rd, and I tweeted a link to apply at CPR Warner. Finally, did you catch the Tonight Show on Wednesday? You may have seen Jimmy Fallon welcome back a familiar face. And we got great music from Nathaniel Rateliff. Oh, my goodness. And it's still all right. 
Denver singer-songwriter Nathaniel Rateliff made his Tonight Show debut back in 2015 with a performance that left Fallon giddy, and the studio audience gave Rateliff a standing ovation. The whole thing turned out to be a big break for him and for his band The Night Sweats. This week's appearance was his fourth on Fallon. This time, before Rateliff came out, Jimmy was studying a copy of And It's Still All Right, Rateliff's upcoming solo album. The cover has him standing in the woods with sunlight streaming through the trees. He's got a big old grin on his face. I wonder if he recorded it in the woods. I bet he did. <laughs> we could ask him. Well, ask him. When, I mean, you're going to talk to him, are you? No. Oh, well, then we'll never know. We're not on speaking terms. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we got in a fight backstage. But it's all right. Hey, whatever. Hey, whatever, man. But anyways, he's the best. We love him. And every time he sings, he crushes it here. We love Nathaniel Rateliff. Oh my gosh, Jimmy Fallon is starstruck. So here's the performance, and I'll let Jimmy Fallon make the proper introduction. Performing the title track to his upcoming solo album, and it's still all right. Please welcome back Nathaniel Rateliff. Denver's own Nathaniel Rateliff performing earlier this week on The Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon. Rateliff's new album, And It's Still All Right, drops February 14th. Remember that we drop as a podcast every weekday. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. We know we to get down. We start praying for wings.